Would you take a piece of paper out of the chair in front of you? It's going to look like this. Or you can, you can, if you have a piece of paper, you can write in. That's fine. Grab a pencil. And I want you to hold the paper sideways so it's landscape orientation and make a line from one end to the other so that you cut the sheet in half from top to bottom, so from one side to the other. And that line is going to be the timeline of your life. Okay, once you've done that, I would like you to divide that timeline into segments representing different periods of your life. So, you know, that's going to look different for different ones of us. If you're 80, maybe you divide it into eight. 10-year-long segments. Uh, If you're 21, maybe you divide it into seven three-year segments. If you're 14, you divide it into seven two-year segments. So you got the idea? Did you do this? You're turning this in at the end. This is an assignment. (laughs) Now I want you to plot at least three high points and three low points of your life on that paper. So the high points will be at the top of the page, low points at the bottom of the page. Maybe some will be lower than others. Um, The high points might represent getting married, for example, uh, having kids or grandkids, working at a great job, job you loved. Uh, The low points might represent the breakdown of a marriage, the death of a family member, a period of deep depression. So on my page, I have high points for college. It was a good time in my life. Um, getting married, having children, um, and grandkids, and uh, working at Lockwood, coming to Lockwood. For low points, I have the death of my brother and the years that followed that, the time I worked at a job that I absolutely hated, and the time my application was rejected, and what I thought I was going to be doing for my life work just vanished before my eyes. Those are the low points. Okay, So you do something like that. Some of you have, you can connect the lines too if you want, graph them out. Some of you have plotted the highest point of your life at the very end of the line. You're living the high point right now of your life. And others of you are right now at the lowest point of your life. For some of you, your high points represent significant accomplishments on your part. While for others, the high points represent a period where everything was just going right in life. It wasn't so much what you did, but things were just going right. For some of you, the lowest points represent a time when everything was going wrong in your life. And maybe for some of you, it wasn't so much that things were going wrong, but at that low point, you were going wrong. Uh, Maybe you were caught in an addiction that bled your bank account and your relationships, or you had an affair that destroyed your marriage, or you did something wrong at work and lost your job. Whatever it was, your life hasn't been the same since. Okay, so you got your thing? Here's the question. Can a person come back from those low times, especially those personal failures, those self-inflicted wounds? If your boss is done with you, your spouse is done with you, your friends have thrown you over, does it mean that God is done with you too? Is that how the story has to go? That's the question. In Romans 9 through 11, Paul has been telling a story. He and other early Christian teachers use stories to instruct their students. We tend to take facts and place them before our students. They took their students and placed them in a story. And not just any story, in God's story. 
Paul has been telling God's story, and he's highlighted some of the high points and graphed them out for us. In chapter 9, he took us back to the events surrounding God's selection of Israel as his people. He then recalled God's delivery of Egypt of Israel from Egypt and the great accidents that transformed some Hebrew-speaking tribes into a nation. But as he's told the story, the low points have outnumbered the high points. He's recalled periods characterized by stubbornness and pride. He's taken us back to the Jews' utter failure to live as the people of God and to their eventual exile from the land. But the lowest point in the story, and this is at the end of chapter, chapter 9, was when the Messiah came to Israel and his people didn't recognize him. They mistook their rescuer for an intruder and they killed him. It was as if a doctor friend traveled to a foreign country, obtained an extremely rare medicine that could cure your terminal illness and sent it back to you, and you mistook it for something else, for some foul-smelling aftershave, and you poured it down the drain. You, you missed it. You lost your opportunity. Israel lost its opportunity after what they'd done. What was left? Is there nothing left for them now but misery and rejection? Is there any hope? That's the question. And Paul answers, yes, there is hope. But he doesn't find it in the ability of Israel to reinvent themselves after failure, but the ability of the God who can raise the dead. Let's read a section of our text. This is Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. Again, I ask, did they, he's talking about Israel, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? In verse 15, Paul restates the question that I've been asking about us as individuals. Only he asks it of an entire nation. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Now remember the context. Paul has been rehearsing Israel's part of God's story. And he's been honest, sometimes even a little harsh, in recalling their failures. At the beginning of chapter 10, Israel stubbornly refused to listen. And they tried to have a relationship with God on their own terms. They heard the truth, that's chapter 10, verses 18 through 19, but they didn't understand it. They wouldn't understand it, didn't want to understand it. And yet, verse 21, God reached out to them. He pleaded with them, but they remained obstinate. They insisted on having it their own way. And that's why in chapter 11, verse 2, Paul has to ask, did God reject his people? After what they've done, did God reject his people? Now, when you come to this text, it's, 
in chapters 9 through 11 generally. It is of the utmost importance to see where Paul places the emphasis. It is not on Israel, it's on God. That's because Romans is not really about the kind of people the Israelites were, though that's part of the story. I mean, they were stubborn, they were self-willed and disobedient. And nor is Romans about what kind of people we are, though that also is addressed. We're sinners who've fallen desperately short of the glory of God, the glory for which we were created. Romans includes that in the story, but that's not what it's about. It's not about the kind of people we are, the kind of people the Jews are. It's about the kind of person God is. What kind of person is God? He is patient and kind. That's chapter 2, verse 4. Doesn't play favorites. That's chapter 2, verse 11. He does what's right. His righteousness is the central theme of the entire letter. He's the kind of person who would never go back on a promise. That's chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. He'd rather die, which, of course, is exactly what he did. And there's more. He's the kind of person who's genuinely interested in others. See, he knows you. He knows all about you. He knows everything you've ever done and everything you've ever thought. He's the heart searcher, chapter 8, verse 27. He not only knows everything you've ever done, he knows why you've done it. Even when you haven't understood why you did it. But he's not only smart, he's strong. He can do anything. Creation, which is tens of billions of light years in diameter and engineered with a precision humans can't even begin to comprehend, much less duplicate. Creation is evidence of God's unimaginable power and ability and knowledge. That's chapter 1, verse 20. And with that kind of knowledge and ability, God is always able to keep his promises. That's chapter 4, verses 20, verse 21 especially. But more than that, Because of all this wisdom and knowledge and power, he is able to use all things. This is chapter 8, verse 28. Even the bad things that happen to us, even the bad things we do, even the death of his son, he can use all things to bring good. That doesn't mean that all things are good. We couldn't accept that for a moment. But it means God is so smart He knows how to make good come from all things and so powerful that he does that. Those are the kinds of things Paul has been telling us about God. He knows everything, can do anything, and is kind, patient, and just. But one of the main things he tells us about God is that God really loves us. People come to the Bible, they think they have to go to the Apostle John's writings in order to read about God's love. But it is here in Romans that we find that God loves failures. He loves stubborn, disobedient, I'll do it my own way, rebels. He loves us and has loved us even at our worst. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And there's nothing in this tens of billions of light years wide universe that can prevent his love from reaching us. That's chapter 8, verses 32 through 39. This person, this God, our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't give up. When things don't go his way, 
And what I mean by that is when people sin and act unjustly and stupidly, this God doesn't worry. He doesn't bite his fingernails and fret. He uses even our stubbornness and sin to bring new dimensions of beauty and glory into his story. That's what Paul is saying in chapters 10 and 11. Look at verse 11 again. Because of their transgression, Israel, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them envious. Paul first brought this up in the last chapter. When Israel failed to recognize her long-awaited, long-promised Savior, when they mistook him for an intruder and killed him by hanging him on a cross, God did not go into panic mode. He didn't say to himself in a voice like the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz, oh, am I in for it now? What am I going to do? What am I ever going to do? He didn't start popping rollades. The God that we've been reading about wasn't stumped for a moment. He didn't lose his balance. He didn't hesitate. Instead, Paul tells us, he took Israel's disastrous failure and he made it serve his purpose. He made it work for good. You can read all about that in the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. God took Israel's refusal to believe in Messiah Jesus and used it to open a door for all the rest of us to come in. Israel's refusal to listen to God and obey him led to suffering and loss as refusal to listen to God and obey him always does. But it also, this is verses 11 and 12, brought salvation to the Gentiles and riches to the world. See, but God didn't even stop there. Whenever he makes the evil that people do, and it's real evil, sometimes unthinkable evil, whenever he makes it serve the good that he's planned, that good is always layered. In our passage, Israel's stubborn pride brought salvation to the Gentiles. But that was only one layer. The salvation of the Gentiles led, in Paul's day, to the salvation of some Jews. That's verse 14. Paul was being realistic about that. But layered on that good is yet another good, the future rescue of all Israel. That's verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved, or literally for because it connects to what just happened. For all Israel will be saved. They, verse 31, will receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you, you Gentiles. And so not only despite failure and sin, but in failure and sin, God makes all things work together for good, one good on top of another. And think about it. If Israel's rejection, verse 15, is the reconciliation of the world and their acceptance is life from the dead, what unthinkable good, what splendor of glory will God bring next? See, God has planned layer upon layer of good, and it's beyond what eye has seen, ear has heard, or human mind has imagined. The God who is able to do this is the one whose story Paul has been telling, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.
The evangelist apologist Ravi Zacharias likes to tell a story about when he was in India. And he watched a father and a son who made some of the most beautiful wedding saris in the world. Indian wedding saris are a work of art. Um, They are about 18 feet long. And they include gold and silver threads. And they're woven in these magnificent display of colors. Zacharias watched as a father sat on a platform above his son, surrounded by spools of thread. Some of the thread was very dark. Some of it was just shining. The son, at a nod from his father, would move the shuttle from side to side, from one side to the other, and then back again, while the father gathered threads in his fingers. And they're all doing this like at the speed of light. And then he would nod again to his son, and the son would move the shuttle again, and they would do this for hundreds of hours to make one wedding sorry. So threads, and he knows which ones at the right time to put together to make this beautiful design. And and Zacharias's story, the father chose the threads, but in our lives, we get to choose some of them. We give the threads of our lives to God, including some he told us not to give him, some very dark ones, but others that shine with light, and he weaves them into something beautiful for us, for the world, and for himself. He's that good. Do you know this God? By which I mean, are you getting to know him? Are you beginning to learn you can trust him? Have you done the smartest thing any of us can do and brought your life and hopes and even your failures to him? If you have, things are going to be all right. Whether you're at the low point on that graph or at the high point. Now, I know some of you might think, but you don't know. You don't know what I've done. I'm one of those people who giant sizes his failures. My failures are just too big, too bad. Well, my answer to that is nonsense. The God we're talking about is the one who made his house an adjoining lot, tens of billions of light years across. He has giant sized solutions for your giant sized failures. And the creation. Out of nothing, that's child's play compared to the giant-sized work he's about right now, creating saints out of sinners, and he will succeed at that. He'll use even our worst failures to bring good. Nothing can stop him, not even us. But we can join him. That's the good news. By submitting our lives to him through faith in the leader and representative he's chosen, Jesus Christ, we can join him. More than in any other way, it's through Jesus that God demonstrated his astonishing ability to make all things, even the worst things, work together for good. He took the rejection and murder of the best person who ever lived, the only true good person in the history of the world, the one through whom The world was made. He took the most horrific act ever performed by humankind, the rejection of God, his torture and murder in human flesh, and he used it for the salvation of the world. If he can do that, 
He can and will use the worst things that happen to you and even the worst things you've done and make them work for good. And he'll do this whether you want him to or not. You have no choice in whether he will bring good from these things. But you do have a choice in whether he'll bring that good to you. That depends on whether you will turn to him and trust your life to him. So here we are at this point, perhaps years beyond the life-changing tragedy or the career-ending failure or the relationship-fracturing sin, or maybe we're just weeks beyond it. Or maybe we're not beyond it at all. We're right in the middle of it. So what do we do? What are we supposed to do? We don't start by doing. We start by seeing. Seeing who the God is, who is the subject of this letter. The God who repeatedly astounded the Apostle Paul. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only the creator of this vast universe, he is the guide of the smallest subatomic particle. He's right now active and always has been in history, in nations, and in lives, in the lives of the famous and of the unknown, of world leaders and of impoverished children. He will make things right. He will rescue his people, not only from their sufferings, but also from their sins. Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The better you know this God, the more your hope will grow. You can come to the end of your life. You can come to your deathbed overflowing with hope. We often talk about inviting God into our lives. That's not quite what I'm talking about. I'm talking about bringing your life to God, including your hurts, the injustices that have been done to you and the sins that have been done by you and giving them to him. Submit your life to his will, which is better than you think, and see what he will do. Ask him to forgive your sins, give him your hurts and your failures, and ask him to transform them and to something you haven't yet imagined, but that he will use for good. You can give God your hopes, your hurts, and even your sins, and he will do something good with them. Or you can try covering them up. But they have a way of letting you know that they're still there. There's an interesting story on CNN a couple years ago. It's about a man named Jerry Lynn who, you know, he, he wanted to drill a hole in his wall to run cable for his TV. That's all. And he's trying to figure out where to drill, drill the hole. So he got this great idea. He was going to lower his wife's alarm clock through a, an air vent in the upstairs and set it to 
ring, set the alarm to go off in 10 minutes. And he lowered it down the air vent so that he could listen to the alarm, find where it was, and drill the hole. But the string broke, and the clock fell. Well, the alarm still went off, just like he'd set it to go off, and he was able to find the spot and drill the hole. But the alarm continued to go off. Now, it only went off for one minute, and then it would stop. I don't know what kind of alarm it was. It would go off for one minute, and then it would stop. He thought that the batteries would run out pretty quickly. Thirteen years later, the alarm was still going off at exactly the same time every night for one minute until he couldn't take it anymore, and he cut the wall, and he got it out. The past has a way of reminding us of our failures and our hurts, even when we've buried them behind walls of pretense and denial and justifications. It's better just to dig them out now. And when you do that, here's what you can do. Share them with a mature Christian. I know that's scary, but it's huge. Therefore, confess your faults to one another that you may be healed. Confess them to a mature Christian who knows how to keep what you say confidential. And then give them to God, even your failures, even your sins, in confession and prayer. And then watch and see what he will do. This is the God who took Israel's failure and opened up salvation to the world. And then back to them. See, nothing can flummox him. He's never been caught off balance, not even once. The God who dazzled us with the creation of the universe out of nothing has managed to actually raise his game in his latest performance. He's not just bringing something out of nothing. Now he's bringing good out of bad, saints out of sinners, successes out of failures, and he can do it in our lives too. That's the God to whom we give our lives. Now let's pray. Our God, we need, and I pray for this, we need to see you afresh and in ways we haven't seen before. Your power, your goodness, your wisdom. Lord, these words fall too short. They mean one thing to us when we apply them to ourselves and to people we know, but they mean something else when we apply them to you. We, we, we don't need to understand you. We can't understand you, but we need to see again who you are. And we need the help of your spirit so that we can trust our lives, our hopes, and even our failures to you. Grant us this. Grant us this in the name of your Son, Jesus.